Good morning to you. My name is Lance Waldy. If you're visiting today, welcome to Harvest Bible Church. We are going through a study of Luke's gospel. We are a year into this, a little over a year, in the 11th chapter. And in the context in which we are, we're in chapter 11. The context begins in verse 14. This is essentially part three of a short series in this section. It's too long to cover in any one sermon, at least for me. It all begins with Jesus casting out a demon. It makes a, um, um, you'd think that this would be a great, amazing thing for everyone to see. Wow, a demon was cast out. This man who couldn't speak can now speak. But there were skeptics in the crowd. And uh, they were Jewish skeptics, in fact. They were very religious people, skeptics. You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect religious people, but you know, religious people are typically the enemies of Christianity. Let that sink in. We are not religious people. I'm not a religious person. I don't have a religion, frankly. I mean, I know that my faith is called Christianity, but really, I believe in a man who just happens to be God in flesh. I follow him. Is that a religion? In the eyes of the world, it is. That man, Jesus, lived our life and died our death. I don't have to do anything, and neither do you. There's no rituals that we have Uh, that he's given us in order to please him. Love him, obey him. I mean, that's what my wife wants from me too. That's not a religion. I mean, you've got the same issue if you're married. You love your spouse. You, oh, when I say obey your spouse, you know, I don't mean that, you know, it's some sort of a a horrible marriage type thing. You do everything I say, but we, we love each other. We do and submit to each other and we... We, you know, you live in this relationship. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. So it's people that are religious that are typically enemies of the gospel. The gospel which says that you're a sinner and Christ saved us by his grace. If you believe in him, you can have that forgiveness of all of your sins. That's not a religion. So when you, when you tell people this, then as now, religionists get very angry. Wait a minute. You're telling me I don't have to follow seven sacraments if I'm a Roman Catholic? That's exactly what I'm telling you. You don't have to do any of those to be a believer in Christ, to believe one of his children. You mean I don't have to go knock on doors for a couple of years on, on this missionary campaign as a Mormon? No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to get 10% of your money. You don't even have to come to church, ever. Wow, that sounds cheap. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. Those things are not part of a religion that that brings you closer to God. They are very significant things as part of our faith. Baptism is an outward show of my, my love for Christ, my identification with Christ. The water does nothing, but it's an identification. It's a show. It's an outward symbol. It's like wearing a wedding ring. I I don't have to have a ring on to be married, but I wear a ring to signify that I'm married. Doesn't matter if I have it on or not. Giving 10%, Jesus never says. Find somewhere in the New Testament that says, Jesus says you've got to give 10% to be a Christian. Some of you are very relieved at that. Others of you are saying, why in the world would I want to only give 10% of my money? Christ gave me everything. I want to give him as much as I possibly can and be able to eat a couple of meals a day. Pay my bills. It is a relationship with God through faith. And religionists hate that. 
And the religionists were in the crowd that day when Jesus cast out a demon. And when the mute man spoke, this demon caused him to be mute. In this particular case, he spoke. The crowds were amazed. And now Jesus has entered into the danger zone, as it were. Some in the crowd were, were saying, yeah, right, big deal. He's casting out demons by the power of the devil. It's the devil that gave him that ability to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Black magic. You know, black and white magic. White magic is typically you know, that sleight of hand, you know, smokes and, smoke and mirrors. Black magic is, is also practiced today. It's power of the devil, power of demonic spirits. Some are quite good at it. That's how he's doing it. He's casting out demons. He's flushing them out by the power of the great demon or the devil, Satan himself. Others were amazed. Others said, no, no. We need more signs than this. And Jesus begins to reason with him. He goes, it's ridiculous that I would cast out a demon by the power of the devil. He said, why would Satan cast out Satan? That makes no sense. And if I'm casting them out, by who do all your sons cast them out? Which is either to affirm that they are or just to condemn them. Look, you, you give them the benefit of the doubt that they're out there casting out demons. Why would you say that that's okay and I'm somehow working by the power of the devil? Especially in light of the fact that the people I deliver are able to speak. The people that I deliver are, are delivered immediately. That I am not living a, an unrighteous life and they go off and give praise and glory to God. How do you explain that? They couldn't explain that. My wife and I were talking this morning about devils in the Old Testament versus this is what pastors and his wife talk about. Getting ready for church, you know. Um, devils in the Old Testament and uh, demons in the Old Testament, demons in the New Testament. You know, she said, did they just come in this great new surge when Jesus was around? Um, maybe. We don't see a whole lot of demonic activity, at least spoken of in the Old Testament. With King Saul, we do. And, and the one time we see it in the Old Testament with King Saul, the first king of Israel, it's God that sent the evil spirit upon Saul. So they are submissive to God. In fact, they're tools in his toolbox. They're all under his domination. But we certainly see lots of evil in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, I don't know, maybe they just shriek and come out of people when, when God is near. When the Spirit of God is in front of them. But they are just as active, and I will submit to you, far more active today than they were back then. I think demons learn. I think they learn. I think that they, they test their societies, the society in which they are. Look, hey, let's, let's decide, let's stop being so ugly, evil, and let's make ourselves look very nice. How about that? A demon would, could figure that out. Let's, I mean, the devil is an angel of light. Or I should say he, he transforms himself into an angel of light. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Why not his emissaries? Hey, let's, let's cut all the, the, uh, the strange looks and the, the long fingernails, and let's just look nice. Good idea. Let's be clean cut. Why wouldn't they do that? And they do. I think that they're far more abundant today. I don't think they've become, they're not um, procreating and making more, but I think they are more dominant today than perhaps ever before. Jesus is saying, I'm not casting them out by Satan. I am the power of God. And the fact that, that I do what I do means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what he says. Verse 20, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's God's kingdom that's here. Satan's kingdom is, is within these people. I'm casting it out. 1 John 3, 8, Jesus came to 
What did he come to do? Destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. And that's exactly what he's doing. He walks upon this earth that is overridden by evil, the devil and his angels, and he is casting them out, destroying his works. The ultimate destruction will come at the cross. And he speaks of being a strong man. You know, there's one person who's really strong. A guy guards his house, locks his door, locks and loads, puts all his guns on him, and he's going to guard his house. That's what he's talking about there in verse 21, a strong man. He's talking about Satan, and his possessions are people. But verse 22, when someone stronger comes and attacks him and overpowers him, that's Jesus. He overpowers the devil. The devil's domain is people. People. He's, He's controlling people. Do you see it today? You do notice it today, right? It's all over the place. His influence, so unmistakable. People are believing lies. People have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And there's no end to where it's going to go. We think it's bad now. I remember about 25 years ago, maybe it's 30, 30 years ago, about 30 years ago, someone telling me, I heard it before, I said, look, if you want to know what the United States is going to look like, look at Europe. Sorry, Giles, but you've got to look at Europe and England now. That's what we're going to be like in, in 30 years. Well, they're worse than ever. And that used to be the, the bastion of Christianity. Um, yeah, we're, we're there. And I remember thinking, you know, I remember how, how uh, uh, some of the things in society are, are so taboo 30 years ago. Now it's just it's everywhere. And I thought to myself, I thought, you know, with the more and more that we allow into society and we, it waters us down, it's that frog in the kettle sort of a illustration. I thought, you know, there's going to be a day when pedophilia is going to be not only okay, but encouraged. I am a prophet. <laughs> but you have to be true all the time. So I'm, I'm actually a false prophet that gets a few right. It is. That's where it's going. And that's, it's not even going to end there and how bad it is. I listened to a good friend of mine yesterday preach, and he said, he said this great, great phrase. I believe, but he just said it, it said so good. And he said, you know, it's all falling apart. It's all falling apart, but it's all coming together. I told him that. I said, man, that was an awesome quote. He goes, yeah, I wish I could take claim for it. He said, I heard it in a children's song about 35 years ago. <laughs> It's all falling apart. And look at it. It is all falling apart. A society is falling apart. And yet, it's all coming together. Just the way God's Word said it would. Jesus came to overpower it. We see Him in charge of of everything, even the devil himself. And then He says there in verse 23, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality with Christ. You either believe and you are with Him or you are not. Some of you really need to let that hit you between the eyes. You might say, well, I'm with him. No, you're not with him. What is the evidence of your life that says you're actually with him? You shake your fist at him. You're angry at him. This didn't go your way, so you're mad at God. You don't attend church regularly. You don't give any money to the church. You would never think to do that. You don't serve at the church. You're not reading your Bible at home. You're not spending time in prayer. And if you are, it's just a moaning and groaning about what God's not doing for you. Oh, but you're okay with Him. That's a terrible relationship. And then you blame Him for it. Folks, if you are not, Jesus said it Himself, if you're not with me, if those who are not with me are against me. 
Someone might say, well, Jesus, I'm not against you, but I like you. You know, I'm, I'm just in the middle. I think you're a cool dude. No, you're against me. He who is not with me is against me. If you're not gathering with me, you are scattering. But I'm not scattering anything, Lord. I'm not doing anything. Yes, you are just one and the same as one who scatters. And then he speaks of what an unclean spirit does. Here's what's happening to the unclean spirit. He casts out in verse 14. When it leaves a person, it goes through arid places, and it looks for a new host. And when it can't find a host, it goes back to the original one, and it takes seven demons worse. Seven more wicked demons. Demons more wicked than itself. Now there's eight living in in this host. Because the person that got rid of the demon was someone who basically kicked a bad habit. Maybe it's someone who kicked a really bad habit. But they did not replace the void with Christ. I talked about that last week. God's Word talks about the danger. You're not just finished with evil now until you replace your bad habit, your sinful ways. One sinful way, you'll replace it with another sinful way. Well, I kicked my drinking habit, and now I overeat. I kicked my looking at filthy things habit, and now I take drugs. You're going to fill it with something. That's just, all that is, is the demon returning with seven demons more wicked than itself. And the last state of your condition is worse than the first. Those are Jesus' words, by the way. I'm not making this up. In the midst of this very tense situation, you hear this woman. Sounds reminds me of a golf tournament. You know, when, when somebody hits a golf ball, as soon as they hit it, well, what do you hear in the background? You the man! Sometimes you hear it right before the, they actually hit the golf ball. Some bonehead out there waiting to be heard. I don't think this is a bonehead. This is a woman in the midst of this very tense situation. Some unnamed woman rises, brings her, her voice above the crowd. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which you nursed. Blessed is your mama. Your mother must be so proud of you. I'm with you, Jesus. I'm not one scattering. I'm with you. And Jesus doesn't correct her. But he sends to say, in, in, a, in a very um, loose translation, he would say, thank you. That's very kind of you. Yes, my mother, Mary, is a very blessed woman. She bore the Christ child. But as blessed as Mary is, he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now think about that. Mary, this peasant girl from Nazareth, she was given the privilege of bringing forth the Christ child. There's really no one in the history of the world that's more blessed than that. Jesus' mama. She's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus, God in flesh. God himself has no mother. But what a blessed woman she is. Some people even pray to her. Jesus, however, says, look, all of you are on her plane even more blessed for those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now that's bold. In the midst of this very tense situation, Jesus never watered down anything. He spoke the truth when the crowd was the most combustible. You might enter a situation like that over the course of your life. You might be sharing the gospel, and it starts to get tense. And you think, I might want to tone this down. Use your wisdom, but remember Jesus. 
Jesus didn't turn anything down. Blessed are those who hear the word of God. He's telling them, I am God. Hear the word of God, because he just said, the kingdom of God has come upon you. I'm casting out demons. The kingdom of God is here. To hear my word and observe it makes you blessed above all. Against those skeptics who are saying, no, what you're doing is by the power of a demon. No, we need some more signs. How many signs do you need to believe? Ask yourself that. If you're not yet a believer, what are you waiting for? What do you, what do you need to see? I would love to sit down with you. For you just to have a moment of, of honesty with me, not that you have to answer to me, not that I'm going to preach to you. I really just want to know, what do you need to see here? Something. What do you need to actually say, okay, I believe? Now, I'll tell you the answer that you need. You actually need the Holy Spirit to come upon you and regenerate your soul to believe. But I want to know what you and your flesh really think you need. You need to see a miracle? Jesus has been performing those, and even those who saw it were crediting it to the devil. They knew it was something amazing. Apparently, they thought the devil could do amazing things. But that wasn't good enough for them. So the crowds began to increase there in verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he addresses the issue where people said back in, in in verse 16, where others were testing him, demanding a sign from heaven. He answers them. As the crowds increase, he says, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah. Now, some of you, I say some of you, uh, many people in the history of of my own preaching ministry um, have come to the church and heard me say the following, you're a wretched sinner. Or offended. (laughs) They were offended and they never came back. I've heard of people who were just livid. One lady told me, she said, I didn't want to tell you this, but she said, you offended those people so bad by saying what? Because you called them sinners. They've never been talked to that way before. Okay, so let me just say it again. (laughs) With a smile on my face, folks. It's not an insult. It just is what it is. We fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. We are all, we're not just sinners. We're wretched sinners. Was that nicer? (laughs) Did the tone of my voice make that easier on some of you very sensitive millennials? (sighs) What a sensitive generation. Goodness. Gen Z, millennials, the most sensitive people the world has ever seen. Baby boomers, you're not far behind. By the way, I read that this week. That's actually, statistically speaking, very true. We Gen Zers, actually I'm Gen X. Gen Xers, we just say it like it is. We're offended at nothing. No, I get offended too. I understand. But there are people that get angry when they just hear the truth. I don't want to hear that truth. Jesus says, this generation is a wicked generation. You people are wicked. Really, Jesus? On top of this very tense situation, now you're going to tell them this too? Yeah. Yeah. And what generation could Jesus have come into where he couldn't have said that? Could Jesus have come into a generation and said, you know what, you people are pretty good. Ah, there you guys are really, y'all are sharp. No generation ever. This generation, a generation is typically between 20 and 40 years. And the generation he's talking about here is this particular setting, you Jewish people are a wicked generation. Why? He says it. You seek for a sign. 
You're wanting a sign. In light of everything else Jesus has done, you want a sign. A sign, which is to say a miracle. Now, some people are trained in the various churches today to seek miracles. If you come from a charismatic or Pentecostal persuasion, uh, you are taught, you are, I should say, um, conditioned. Each week is to be better than the previous week. Each week is to you have a greater miracle, see greater things, feel greater feelings than you felt the week before. Last week was great, but what do you have for us today, Pastor? Today I just have a boring message, verse by verse, through a paragraph in Luke's gospel. Well, we don't want to hear that. Signs, miracles, what can you show me? What feeling can I leave here with the music? We tone down our music here at this church on purpose. Our musicians are fantastic musicians, by the way. Every one of them could turn it up three or four notches, and we could turn it up a lot louder at the back, and we can put all these lights down, and we can get some disco lights if we wanted to. And cool it down. You know, really cold, and hands in the air like you don't care. We intentionally don't do that. That's, that's, that's cheap. Emotional highs from songs we like are cheap. They're cheap three-minute highs, are they not? They're there and they're gone. Next song, there and they're gone, there and they're gone. And we call it worship. It's not worship. It's music. It's beautiful. And it can be worshipful. But we intentionally turn it down, tone it down. We don't want people in a frenzy over music. I don't want you leaving the church with a song on your heart. That's why we don't close with a song. I want you, having spent the better part of my week in God's Word, with God's Word, teaching God's Word, with God's Word on your minds when you leave here. At least that's my, that's my goal. I think that's what God wants of us. I know it's what He wants of me. Seeking signs, God's Word is so powerful. What else are you looking for? I want you to know that true worship is found in the, I heard Alistair Begg say it in such a great way, in the steady, did that sound Scottish to you? Because I don't know how to speak Scottish, just really with a dumb accent. I'm just going to say it in English. He said, with a steady, unspectacular, day-to-day, drab relationship. That's what worship is, steady and unspectacular. No, that's no fun. We want signs, feelings. People have told me, you can't tell me that you talking for an hour and us sitting still is worship. Oh, yes, I can. I can tell you that because that's what Jesus told Mary when he rebuked Martha. Remember, Martha's out serving and she's trying to bring it all together. Jesus, tell Mary to help me out while she's sitting still at the feet of Jesus. And he said, I'm not going to do that. She's chosen the better one. And I'm not going to take it from her. Sitting still, listening to the Word of God. I know I'm not Jesus, but I'm telling you what Jesus' words are. And you can read them with your own eyes. You know it too. Sitting still, yes, you're worshiping. We call it a service. You're thinking, what service did I give? I came and sat down and left. It's a sacrifice. You got up. You took a shower. You put nice clothes on or clothes on. You came here, you could be doing anything else, but you're here, and you're listening, and you're demanding that God's word be spoken. There is a sacrifice of worship in that. 
Don't ever discredit it. You lessen it when you want to be running around a church. You know there are churches that give out water bottles when they get here. Some of you have been to these. Why water bottles? Because you need them. You're going to be running around chasing something. You're going to be getting down on all fours, barking in some churches. You think I'm making that up? You could be part of the catch ministry. You know, when the pastor throws his coat at somebody, people fall back. You've got to catch him, or they might bump their head and die. You're running around. You're sweating. And you go home, I worship today. No, you didn't. You acted a fool in the wrong church without any worship whatsoever. Demanding signs. But no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Did Jonah have a sign? I want you to note here, Jesus' references of, of Jonah here and his explanation of Jonah prove that Jonah is a real historical character and was actually swallowed by a large fish and lived to tell about it. Some people say, oh, that's, a, that's a, an allegory, and if I'm going to believe the Bible, you're telling me I have to believe that? I'm telling you that you, you get to believe that. Jonah. Let me refresh your memory. Jonah is a Jewish prophet. He lived around 800 B.C. God told him, you want, he said, I want you to go preach to those wicked Assyrians in Nineveh. That's their capital city. Assyria, by the way, is an ancient kingdom. It's, uh, it's just east of Syria. It's in modern Iraq and, and Iran and the northern parts of, of that, uh, that modern area. Uh, Jonah was sent to go from Israel to Assyria and preach to people that he hated. Jews hated Assyrians. They were filthy. They were the most barbaric peoples on the planet and their empire, all the stories that are there, all of the depictions that are given to the Assyrians, these were a wicked, God-hating, pagan people. Jonah, you're going to go tell them about my love. No, I'm not. I ain't going there. So instead of going to Assyria, he went the opposite direction. Found a boat, got on a boat, it's going to sail to a place called Tarshish, believed to be in Spain. And he set sail. Well, as you know, the story, the, the waters become terribly rough. And Jonah realizes what he's doing. He knows he's in rebellion. You know when you're in rebellion against God, don't you? And when you're in rebellion against God, every bad thing that happens, you might not want to admit it out loud, but in your mind you're going, yeah, I deserve this. This is happening. You cheated on a test in college or something, and bad things start happening. You're going, God, you're getting back at me for that, right? could be anything like that. Jonah knows and he tells the guys, look, my death is really all that's going to do. It's the only thing you guys can do to fix this. Throw me overboard. Probably expected to die. Throw me overboard. They didn't want to do it, but it only got worse. So they finally threw him overboard, and they prayed to Jonah's God to forgive them. They throw him overboard. Um, he thinks he's going to die. The, the waters do die down, and a huge fish swallows Jonah. Uh, can the God who created the, the universe out of nothing cause a big fish to swallow a human being and him live? You see, it all goes back to creation, folks. If you believe Genesis 1-1 about God, everything else is just gravy. You know how gravy goes. You pour it, just smooth. Makes a chicken fried steak just the most wonderful meal, just gravy. But if you don't believe the creation, you'll have trouble with just about everything in the Bible. So in other words, if you reject the first verse of the Bible, you're in trouble. I don't know that you can reject the first verse and call yourself a believer. Because essentially you're saying 
to God. Lord, I know that the word says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, day two, three, four, five, six, rested on seventh day. There was evening, morning, first day, evening, morning, second day, 24-hour days. I don't know how you can reject that and give credit to evolution and call yourself Christian. I think you're in the same category as these people who said, I saw you cast out that demon. I'm going to give credit to what you did, God, to the devil. And Jesus, in fact, in Matthew's gospel, he said, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Giving credit to the devil for something God did? Don't give credit to creation, to some ridiculous notion of, of evolution. Well, I learned it in college. I went to the university. Yeah, you learned it from an atheist. Or someone calling themselves a Christian who never heard the good news to begin with. Never heard that actually there's scientific evidence and proof of a young earth. Ooh, I really got under the skin of some of you there, right, didn't I? No, 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 I don't believe that, Lance. Okay. I am going to stand before God one day, as are you, as a preacher at least. And he's going to ask, Lance, why did you take my word and tell people that it wasn't true in the beginning? And tell them that those six days of creation weren't literal. What gave you the right to do that? No, he's not going to say that to me. Because I've never done that and I never will. There'll be other things I'm going to answer for. That's just not one of them. I'm never going to be questioned. Lance, why did my word say this and you said it didn't mean that and it meant this? I'm not going to be held accountable for that. And I encourage you not to be held accountable for it either. What God's word says, God's word means. It's not negotiable. You don't get that freedom, we don't get that freedom. Because by doing so, folks, we're in the same category as these people Jesus is rebuking. You're giving credit to the devil for things God did. The sign of Jonah is that Jonah was swallowed by this fish. And for three days, the man was conscious inside the belly of this fish. He was vomited, it's the only way to say it. He was vomited upon the shore with whatever else was in that stomach of that fish. The story makes it to the Ninevites, apparently, because Jesus, or not, not Jesus, but Jonah goes and preaches, hey, let's listen to the guy with all the whale junk all over him. His love for Nineveh has yet to come into his heart. He still hates the Ninevites. We know this from Jonah's story, because all he does when he gets to Nineveh is go back and forth through the city and say, repent, for God's judgment is coming. Back and forth. Repent. He probably said it with no love, nothing else. Fine, Lord, I'll do what you said. Repent. Lord's God, wrath is God coming. Repent. God's wrath is coming. Repent. Repent. Boom. And he leaves. And where does he go? He goes out a far distance from the city and waits for the wrath of God to explode on it like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it doesn't. Was Jonah angry about that? Yes, he was. He was furious. He was furious with God. He said, isn't this what I said, God? Isn't this why I didn't go in the first place, that you might show grace to them? What's the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is resurrection from the dead, folks. Something about rising from the dead or from, from very adverse circumstances and preaching the truth that makes the message a little bit more authentic. This sign seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Now, Jonah is not explained here. It is explained, however, in Matthew chapter 12, verse uh, verse 40, because where Jesus says, he adds to it, he says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great sea monster, 
So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So not only does Jesus use Jonah as a literal prophet with a literal experience, he takes the typological significance of this resurrection that Jonah had. Now, he didn't die and come back to life, but he was as good as dead. He was spit back up onto the shore and lived to preach. Verse 30, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation, this generation that he called wicked earlier. He's already done these great signs, but he's essentially saying, because in the context here, Jesus hasn't been killed and he hasn't been resurrected. But he's saying, there will be a sign where I will die, I will come back to life, and that will be the sign you see. You're seeking a sign. The only sign you're going to get is my resurrection from the dead. When they noted that he was resurrected from the dead, did they believe? No. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to the end of the chapter, says they made up a story that the disciples stole the body. Strange how the disciples behaved if they stole the body. They all went out and died martyrs' deaths for something they knew to be a lie? No. No doesn't work that way no one could explain even if they they could jesus where was he how were these guys if they stole the body why would they go die for a dead person that never raised from the dead the sign of jonah that jesus is talking about will occur when i rise from the dead that's the sign of jonah the sign of jonah is the resurrection of jesus from the dead and as Jonah's preaching, following this event, made his, apparently made his message more pertinent to the Ninevites, these filthy, uncircumcised, God-hating Ninevites actually listened and repented. It's amazing. How many examples are there in the Old Testament where a prophet spoke and the people listened? Two, I think. Jonah and Haggai. The only ones that I can remember where a prophet spoke and people listened. And the people that listen here are not even Israelites, they're Ninevites, they're Assyrians. And so Jesus is essentially telling them, I'm going to give you another sign, I'll give you a sign, it's going to be my resurrection from the dead. That sign that was then is the same sign we have now. In fact, it is why we believe. I would not encourage anyone to believe that Jesus is the Christ if he was still dead. There would be nothing to believe. The crux of the matter, the entire foundation of our faith crumbles to bits if there is no resurrection. The Apostle Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15. Without the resurrection, it all falls over like a house of cards. You ever seen a house of cards? You ever built a house with playing cards? Pull one out or pixie sticks, all falls down. You pull the resurrection out, you disprove the resurrection, it's all over. That's why so many skeptics have gone out and tried to disprove the resurrection. They all come back Christians. Lee Strobel is one of them. Josh McDowell's another one. There are so many of them. Frank Morrison, another one. It's actually his code name, Frank Morrison. Forgot his real name. He wrote a book years ago called Who Moved the Stone? Who Moved the Stone? He's trying to figure out. It's not that Max Licato book, Who Moved the Stone? It's, it's an old apologetics book, Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. And he, his first chapter is, is, is called The Book That Refused to Be Written. The book that he wanted to write was that there was no resurrection, and here's the evidence for it. But the book that he did write was that there's no possible way that there wasn't a resurrection of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? More skeptics need to quit griping and just go out and try to put an end to the Christian faith. But they're too cowardly. 
they won't do it. That's going to be the sign. You want a sign? That's going to be the sign. Then and now. Verse 31, the queen of the south. By the way, that's the queen of Sheba. Uh, her Sheba is modern Yemen. About 1,300 miles from Jerusalem. This is a story from 1 Kings. If you would, I'd like you to go back to 1 Kings, to the left of where you are. If you don't know the, your Old Testament, I'm just going to start from the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Um, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. 1 Kings, 2 Kings. If you're in Chronicles, you've gone too far. I am in 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings 10. Let's look at the queen of Sheba. Jesus is about to talk about her. Let's get this story down. Mind you, the first story he just told is of Ninevites, filthy Assyrians that Jews hated, who have repented and believed in Yahweh God. That's not going to do Jesus any favors. He's with Jewish religionists. We don't want to hear about Gentiles coming to believe. They hated the story of Jonah. Then and now. And they don't like this one any better. Yet it's in their Hebrew scriptures. 1 Kings 10, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba, this is in the context of David, King David having died and him being taken over, his kingdom and now is taken by his son Solomon. God blessed Solomon immensely. Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. That is concerning not as so much his wealth, but the name of Yahweh. And she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue with camels, carrying spices and very much gold, precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers, and the stairway by which he went up to his house, the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, half the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. This is a woman from Yemen. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave Solomon. Okay, let's go back to our passage in Luke 11. Jesus calls her the queen of the south because she's south of Israel. Verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation. Think about that. She will rise up with the men of this generation. The generation that he just called wicked. She's going to rise up with you at the judgment and condemn them. You religionists, he's saying, you're going to die and you're going to be resurrected along with the queen of Sheba. And you're going to find yourself at the opposite end of her pointing finger condemning you because she believed and you didn't. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is that argument from from, uh, little to more, from small to greater. She came from a long way away to hear the wisdom of God's chosen king, Solomon. And she was transformed by it. She believed. She gave glory to God, Israel's God. And you, Jews, Jewish people, Jesus' own people, seeing every day the Christ, something much greater than Solomon, you're seeing with your eyes. I'm not just preaching. I'm casting out demons. I'm making blind people see, mute people speak. I'm raising the dead. I'm casting out demons. I'm greater than Solomon. He continues in verse 32. The men of Nineveh, those filthy Assyrians you hate, will stand up with this generation, a generation he called wicked, at the judgment and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is so dangerous. So dangerous for the average person today who thinks they're Christian and who do not follow Christ, who do not gather or gather with Him but scatter. You've got people from the Old Testament who did not have God's covenant. They did not have God's scriptures. They did not have God's grace, per se. Yet in God's grace, He sent messengers to Nineveh, this terrible terroristic nation. Jonah, go preach to him. What? I want to preach to them? That's like God calling one of us today. Hey, go, go to Afghanistan and your, your mission field is going to be the Taliban. Well, I, I, I'm not doing that. Oh, yes, you are. But I might die. Okay, so you're going to die anyway. Go do what I said. See what happens. Or maybe it's just go next door and Develop a relationship with your neighbor so that you can present Christ. Or just go present Christ. I don't know, Lord. They scare me. Jonah ended up doing what God wanted him to do against his will. And God transformed those people. Queen of Sheba came down and was amazed and believed and gave glory to God. But the people of Jesus' generation, none of them did. And Jesus is saying, if they did that, and I'm greater than Jonah and the queen of the south, or greater than Solomon, look at what you're missing. And why? Because they were religious. He didn't fit their religion. Some people today who will not eat meat on Fridays cannot understand how we eat meat on Fridays. Why, don't we eat meat for, why do we eat meat on Fridays? Because we can't find anywhere in the New Testament that says thou shalt not eat meat on Fridays. Is that a way to be holy? In your own mind. Loving God and, and, and obeying God is what shows that we actually love God. Adding religious principles. Now that doesn't mean that you can't abstain from food on Fridays. If you want to do that, then you do that. But don't go telling people that they have to do it to be holy. If you want to put your kids, take your kids out of the public school system and put them in homeschool, that's probably the right thing to do. I mean, in today's day, it's absolutely the right thing to do. But it doesn't make you more holy. And it's not going to make your kids Christian over and against them being in the public school. 
and make sure that you don't judge those who keep their kids in the public school as if, as if somehow you're more holy than them. That doesn't make Christians. And you can't go around. These are called legalisms. They're religiosity. If you don't drink alcoholic beverages, that's fantastic. Probably a good idea. But for those who do drink alcoholic beverages, there's nothing in the Bible that says it's wrong. Drunkenness is, but you're not more holy than they. That's religion. And people that are religious cannot cannot accept the grace of God whereby God has done everything. I've done all of that, Lance. Why are you striving, Lance? I did it all while I was dying. What are you trying to add to this, Lance? I I got all of it. If my answer is, I don't know, Lord, I'm trying to be worthy, then I'm probably not a Christian at all. But if I say, Lord, I'm doing it because I love you so dearly, then I know exactly who he is. Not to add to anything God has done, but to simply sacrifice who I am for what he's done. And then Jesus closes with this little parable. Common sense. When you turn on the lights, you want some illumination. Back then, you didn't flip on light switches. You lit a lamp. It was fire. So it would be absurd to light a lamp and put it under something. It would catch it on fire or just snuff it out. So he says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on a lampstand, out in the open, that is to say, so that those who enter may see the light. Okay, that's common sense. Thank you, Jesus. Finish this thought, please. The eye is the lamp of your body. Now, we're going to look at this two ways. The the eye allows light to come into your body. When my eyes are open or if I'm not blind, light comes in and it floods everything. I can see. We take that for granted. Isn't that a great gift God gives us? Not all have that. But he's saying that's the lamp of your body. The way it brings in physical light illumines your whole life. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. So if I can see well, my whole body, I see all the light. But when it's bad, if my eyes are bad or if they're blind, your body is full of darkness. The lights might be on, but if I can't see, there is no light into my body. So he's saying that's what the, that's what the eyeball does. The eye brings light into you. That's the physical part of this p- parable. Verse 35, but watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Wait, what? What, what does that mean? The light here is about what you believe. Write that down in your Bible if you need it. It's about what you believe. Everyone believes something. Atheists believe. Atheists are believers. They believe there is no God. They have faith there is no God. That's what believe means. It's faith. I believe this. They hate it when you say that. Now I have no faith. Well, That you believe that means that you do have faith. You have faith there's no God. You'd be amazed at how angry... They get when you tell them this. I've watched them. I've only seen one go, yeah, I get it. But the rest just, no, I have no faith. Okay, but you believe in no faith. Watch out that what you believe is not darkness. Remember, the whole context here is Jesus has cast out a demon. Everyone's seen it. Some are casting it over to, or giving credit to Satan. Others are saying, no, we need to see more signs. Jesus is saying, guys, look, I've shown you. Who I am by my words, my actions, my deeds. I've shown you. The light stands before you. Make sure that what you believe is the right thing. 
is that I am God, that I am the kingdom of God. Watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark in it, which is to say, if therefore your body is full of the faith knowing that I am the Christ, that's what he's saying. If your body, if your mind has taken in the reality that I am the Christ, your whole body is full of light with no dark in it, it will be wholly illumined. If you believe that I am the Christ, you are completely enlightened. As when the lamp illumines you with its rays. When we flip the light switches on in this, this whole room is filled with light. When you know that Jesus is God in flesh, your entire soul is illumined with the truth. When you deny it, you will make absurd and ridiculous statements like, I need more signs. The man rose from the dead. Mm, Not impressed. Need it proven. Well, you're not going to have it proven. You can't go back there. And even the ones that saw it firsthand because they didn't want to believe it, didn't believe it. It's not that they couldn't. It's not that they couldn't believe it. What is it, class? It's that they wouldn't believe it. Firsthand eyewitnesses saw it. God doesn't need us going around giving firsthand eyewitness accounts. He doesn't need us doing miracles. We know what they do in the Old Testament, from the New Testament. In that context. So what do we do? Jesus is the light. In fact, let me, let me read over. I know I'm running out of time. I've pretty much run out of time. But I'm going to go over to John chapter 1 real quick. It's the next gospel over, so you can't miss it. On the way to John, you just go through Luke. First page of John's gospel. John says this about Jesus coming into the world. First of all, he speaks of him as always existing. He was in the beginning. He was existing with God. In fact, he is God. He calls him the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Note this, all things came into being through Him. You you put Genesis 1-1 right next to that, and you say, wait a minute. He's Genesis 1-1 God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the what of men? Light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. The people of darkness. Jesus came to the darkness, shone His light Darkness didn't get it, didn't like it. We think that that's Satan casting out Satan. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. That's Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. Later in Jesus, in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. The light that you see is either belief or unbelief. You might think that your unbelief, your atheism is a great light. It's not. It's pure darkness. You'll lose in the end. You'll lose now. You're always a loser by denying God. But if you believe and receive the light... Well, then you're the winner. Why? Because Jesus is the victor. When Jesus says there in Luke, watch out. How do we watch out? I put it on your your calendar. I put it on your, your bulletin there. What does it mean to watch out? In verse 36, 
Verse 35, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Let me give you just quick ones. Give me 30 seconds. You got 30 seconds? You got 30 seconds. (laughs) Make it a minute, he says. Read scripture. But don't just read it. I read it. One of the things I do is I read scripture. I read uh, 10 to 20 chapters per day, sometimes more, or I just read it. I don't even necessarily try to understand it. I'm just reading. I'm just making it as familiar to me as I possibly can. I've been doing this for over 30 years, reading and reading and reading, just going through it multiple times per year. I love that. But there's also a time when I dwell on scripture. Uh, Colossians 3.16 says, dwell richly on scripture. Where, where I study to preach. This is what we're doing right now. We're dwelling richly on it. At least I hope we are. I do that on Wednesday nights with our crowd. We dwell richly. So I take not only my, my full overview of reading it all the time, I dwell richly. I take time to just take a paragraph and just bury myself in it. What does this say? It's when I get real excited about it. I get to preach it. I get that great privilege of, of being excited about something and preaching it. Let it come out. You do that. Read it. Dwell on it. Contemplate it. Think about it. Turn off the radio. Get those earbuds out of your ears. Sit in silence and just think about the passage of Scripture. Number two, pray about Scripture. Here's what it says. Lord, this is what you said. I want to pray about that. I don't understand that. I do understand that. Does this mean that, Lord? Think about it. Pray about it. You need something to pray about? Get rid of all those bullet point prayers where you just say, God, here's what I need. This, 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 and this today. And by the way, I need a really good parking place. One of my great songs of all time is by Don Williams. Lord, I hope this day is good. You know the song? I'm feeling empty and misunderstood. Oh, Lord, I hope this day is good. We all looking for a good day. Lord, give me a good day. Good day. That's a dangerous prayer. Lord goes, huh, you want a good day, do you? Let everything fall in place just the way you want it, huh? What, so you don't have to reach out and ask me for anything? To bail you out of anything? Nah. I ain't giving you a good day. You need me. I'm going to give you a horrible day, a lousy day. So that when somebody says, how was your day, pal? You say it was fantastic. I fell down. I bruised my knees. I got insulted. I lost my job. My wife kicked me out. Cat moved in. (laughs) But God is good. Pray Scripture. Diligently seeking God and worship through the sacrifice of praise and of giving. That's how you watch out. Read, dwell, pray, worship. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would seek you diligently in your word. Not only reading, but dwelling richly. Give us a greater richness to our dwelling upon your word than we've ever had before. We're dull people, Lord. Open our eyes. May our worship be received by you. Jesus said in John 4, you, God the Father, seek those who worship him, worship you in spirit and truth. May we worship you. May you find us. May you wake up and seek. Or let me put it better, Lord. When we wake up, May you seek us because we give you worship in spirit and truth. Not in ritual and our own made-up silliness, but in pure, down-to-earth, we love you, Lord. Truth straight from your word. Seek us. Find worship from us. And when you arrive, and I pray, Lord, your kingdom come today, 
when you arrive, may you find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be faithful, my friends. May God bless you. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 